This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Well, the pandemic continues and Dr. Jason Kinderchuk updates us on that. Ever wonder if your child's speech is delayed? There's a new app called Badly and it might just help. Plus, June is Stroke Awareness Month, and Dr. Jennifer Yao talks about post-stroke spasticity in a new acronym to prevent damage. Plus, I review the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp defamation trial with lawyer Paul Mendes. What does cuddling do for your relationship, and what does oxytocin have to do with it? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Well, you've heard his voice before. We've covered uh, this pandemic for the last couple of years. And joining me on the program once again is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, an actual scientist who does study emerging and re-emerging viruses, including COVID-19 and now monkeypox. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? Uh, doing all right. I, you know, I, I will uh, certainly be up front saying that, uh, you know, we had, we had a recent illness in the family, uh, lost my father-in-law, uh, very, very recently. Aww. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I, I think I need to get across and, and I think is important for people to hear is, listen, I was one of the people who was lucky enough to get to know him, uh, and certainly spend, uh, you know, the better part of the last, you know, 15 years as, as a part of uh, the family. And, um, you know, uh, the, the family is unbelievably strong, so you know I think they they are, are you know going to get through all this um, quite readily. But uh, you know it's it, it's never easy, and I think especially you know with COVID, we faced some of those impediments with you know having a, a COVID infection in the hospital and having you know the uh, the inability to have family go and see them for for quite an extended period. It's it's tough. They, these are things that you know we are not only facing, but a lot of other people are facing, and I think. There's some solace and comfort in knowing that you're not alone in that. Um, but I, I think it's also important for people to realize that we are all struggling, even those of us that are at the forefront of this. Absolutely. I'm so sorry for your loss. It's it's just awful. And I know you've been through a lot over the last little while. You and I have talked about it off air, um, just in terms of, you know, your availability and that kind of thing and when things were challenging. Um, but um, I'm, I'm so sorry. And sending my heartfelt condolences to you and your family. And, and yeah, during the pandemic, it's got to have been 10 times as hard as any other time uh, to to navigate all of that in the hospital, you know, with your father-in-law. Yeah, you know, it it is. And I think it goes back again to this idea that um, we're we're not through this. And certainly for for him, you know, as somebody who was, was in their nineties, somebody who was high risk, um, there was that certainly that feeling within our family that when we removed all the mask mandates and we started going back to this, you know, living with COVID kind of mantra, um, you know, he was in that vulnerable high risk category that suddenly didn't have those protections. Um, so yeah. it, it, it is difficult not to be biased in, in your opinions when, when you see people moving back to normal. But I think we're also very pragmatic in saying there has to be some move back to normal as well. And, uh, and again, we, we are not the only family that, that has faced this, this situation. And unfortunately, uh, there will be many more stories like this uh, moving forward in, in the coming months 
uh, ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. Sadly enough, you're uh, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, so many people have suffered out there. There've been so many vulnerable people, and and I and I think that sometimes their voices aren't heard as loudly as kind of the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers and you know people who you know really want to you know, get the economy going back, which I'm, I'm all for getting the economy mm-hmm. up and, and going again. I mean, when now we're in a completely different phase of what the economy is going to look like with the inflation that we're facing right now. But, um, but for those people who are at home, who are ill, who have Ill, sick family members or friends or lovers or whatever, um, you know, who are immunocompromised or, you know, and it's not necessarily just people who are in their nineties. It's, you know, people yeah. of all, ages, you know, in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. You know, um, I had uh, a friend say, you know, recently said, I'm 51. I've got diabetes. I've got, you know, uh, I've got I'm overweight. You know, he said, if I get COVID, I'm going to die. You know, so, you know, there were just even the worried well that are walking around, you know, that uh, don't want to get COVID. But uh, you say we're go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and you know, and, and certainly, uh, you know, my, my last few weeks as well as the who who you know kind of carved their eye teeth, uh, you know, working on monkeypox um, way way back uh, when I, when I started in high containment research, you know, we've added another emerging infectious disease to the list of things that that we have to worry about now, right right now globally. So um, it's it's been a very tumultuous time, and I think. Uh, it's difficult to find any solace right now. And in moving ahead, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, to me, it's just I, I, the comfort I have is that the, the smartest people in the world are working on these problems. And, and certainly many of my colleagues that I highly respect, uh, you know, are, are, are working beside me uh, on these things. And uh, it's, it's difficult, but uh, we're, we're not losing sight of, uh, of trying to get all of this under control. That's right. We're certainly looking at, I mean, a lot of people think the pandemic is over, COVID is behind us, no longer a concern. Um, you know, the the um, there's no longer a requirement to test to fly into the U.S. Um, but at the same time, and, and even though deaths and hospitalizations are down, at the same time, we're actually seeing some sublineages of Omicron, um, yeah. before, BA4 and BA5. Yeah. And, and here's the concern that we've talked about over and over again, right, is the fact that what, what we've experienced with this virus has been a virus that has continued to change. It's continued to throw the kitchen sink at us in terms of mutations. Um, and it will continue to do that as long as it's able to transmit. This is what, unfortunately, RNA viruses do, and they do it quite well. Um, okay. Right now, with what we're seeing, we are at a point where we can predict what the next variant will look like. We're getting better at identifying uh, them as you know as quickly as we can, um, but we don't know is the next variant going to be more transmissible? It's going to be more virulent. It's going to be less so, um, and that puts us again behind the eight ball because we have the issue of not knowing what is coming, but but knowing there are other variants that will uh, emerge. Um, while we're still struggling on getting vaccine doses out, whether it's fourth doses and third doses here, whether it's additional doses and even first and second doses to uh, to the global south. Um, we are still well within uh, the, this pandemic. Uh, things will change, but we don't want to live in a world where we continually have more variants emerging faster than we can respond. Uh-huh. What about the people who have been vaccinated? Now, there's a group of, I call them the vaccinated anti-vaxxers or the vaxxed anti-vaxxers yeah. who have had the primary series. So they've had either one J&J or 
um, two of the mRNAs, the Pfizer or the Moderna, and they've they had their second dose maybe last May or June, yep. and and now they've decided not to get a booster. Um, you know, what a, there's a large percentage of those people, I suspect. And so what does that do to um, these sublineages or these mutations? Well, it's an issue for us because certainly, you know, when we think about things like vaccine complacency, I mean, hesitancy is a big issue already, but complacency is certainly going to be an issue with a virus that's continuing to evolve. So the issue is, is that, yes, you may have that protection from severe consequences and that and you may still have good protection from severe consequences, even with two doses. But and this is a really big but there's that concern about your lost protection from getting infected and, of course, the ability to then transmit the virus forward. So you have people that are getting infected. The virus is moving through those people. You have mutations that are randomly occurring. If you have somebody that has a longer chronic infection, that now gives more impetus for the virus to be able to change. And then it moves forward. So this is the issue that we get stuck in of how do you how do you try and message to people um, that are you know, and have readily accepted those first couple of doses to come back and get that third dose? How do you incentivize it? Um, that's something we're not used to, unfortunately, especially in, in this short of a period. Uh, but we have to appreciate the virus we're facing today is not the virus we saw at the start of 2020. So while the virus has continued to adapt and change, we absolutely need to do the same thing with, with our response. We do. And there's talk of having another booster in the fall. Uh, and do you think that will be the case along with the flu vaccine? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly foresee, uh, you know, movement forward towards uh, a more Omicron-specific vaccine. I think that with the sublineages that we've seen emerging so far, you know, everything continues to say, okay, the likelihood is that it's going to be Omicron uh, subvariants that, that continue to emerge. So I think we're going to see that. Um, we are seeing certainly a, a push already of saying, you know, we need people to get influenza vaccines. And, of course, people like Moderna are working on the dual vaccines for influenza mm-hmm. and covid um, that will, again, hopefully in, in the future, incentivize people to go in if you're getting everything in one shot. But we don't know if that's going to be the case yet. And, and I think um, we've got to deal with people that are I think, mentally exhausted from, from the pandemic and from all things vaccination. Um, we have to figure out how to counter that so that we're not missing routine vaccinations plus additional COVID vaccines as they become needed. If you've ever had a baby or a friend has had a baby or you have a grandchild, some of the things that we look for developmentally are walking and talking. Well, what happens when that speech development is delayed? Medical appointment backlogs have put a strain on the healthcare system overall during the pandemic, but there's been a surprising delay for appointments with speech pathologists. Oftentimes, parents are waiting a year or 18 months for appointments. That's a critical period of time in a child's language development. Well, enter Miriam Nabavi. She is CEO of Babley, which is an AI company that helps parents monitor speech and language milestones in children with the help of the inaugural Google Voice Accelerator Program. And she joins me on the line tonight from Toronto. Good evening, Miriam. Hi, Marie. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for good. having me. What a fantastic story this is and, and tremendous help that you potentially have provided to parents the world over. 
Uh, tell me a little bit about why you developed Babbly. Uh, yeah, well, in 2018, my son uh, reached his first birthday, and like many parents, I was expecting him to say, you know, his first words, uh, like mama or dada, and I noticed he wasn't saying much. Um, so I brought this up with our pediatrician who didn't seem to be overly concerned. Um, you know, she said, he's a, boy's, he's, he's a boy and boys are late talkers, so let's keep an eye on it and come back in six months, which was the next appointment. Uh, six months later, he was still not talking, so at that point, uh, she referred us to um, the City of Toronto's Early Ability Program, which is a publicly funded program for early intervention and assessment. Um, the issue with that is the wait times can be up to 18 months. We were in the wait list for about nine months to get an assessment. And all that time, not only was a lot of you know frustrations for my son because he wasn't able to communicate, um, but we were also uh, in the dark and really feeling um, anxious because we didn't know how to help our son. Um, once I reached out to a private speech-language pathologist, we started to learn very simple strategies that um, helped us to communicate with him. He started to first pick gestures and then words, and then words became sentences. And at that point, I thought, you know, these strategies are so simple. Why did we have to wait for a year um, to, to learn about them and to get an assessment? So that was kind of the genesis for me to think, how can technology uh, democratize access to both the best practices, these strategies, as well as um, quick assessments so that parents can feel both proud of what their baby is able to do, and if there are any delays, they can act upon it. Uh, it's amazing that your child was over the age of two before you were actually going to be able to see somebody for just an assessment. Correct. Yeah. And so during that time period, you actually reached out to a speech pathologist and, you know, life-changing for your child and yourselves, I would imagine, as parents. Yeah, I mean, he was... Um... You know, we were seeing tantrums. He was banging his head on the floor because um, he wasn't able to tell us if he's, you know, hungry or hot or whatever it is. Um, and once we learned these strategies, um, you know, they were so simple, like, you know, pausing for five seconds when you sing nursery rhymes. Uh, these are not, not medical interventions, so there's no reason to have parents and families wait for these long backlogs in order to coach them um, uh, but once he not. was able to yeah once he was able to tell us uh, you know through pictures and gestures what he wanted we immediately saw a change of behavior and improved our interactions with him as well wow I would imagine that some children would be misdiagnosed with other diagnoses like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or oppositional defiant disorder if when it's actually related to speech development or delayed speech development, if you will? It could be. Um, I mean, statistically speaking, we know one in 10 children does experience some sort of speech and language delay. Um, some of these children will grow out of it. Uh, however, it comes with a lot of negative behavior uh, for the child and, you know, uncomfort for the parents as well while they're trying to, you know, go through this phase. Um, it also is 
shocking when we learned, uh, you know, as, as I came out of that phase, I learned that the average age of diagnosis for these um, conditions are around age four or five. And when you think about the brain and how it develops, 80% of the brain is developed by age three. So by delaying intervention and delaying diagnosis, what's happening is we're missing that golden opportunity to influence and shape how children are able to communicate. Oh, we certainly are. It's just in- incredible. Uh, now, when I was doing a little research for the segment, I came upon a little-known fact, I think, that um, regardless of the language families speak, babies have a universal language, or they, they babble, basically. That's right, yeah. Um, so it doesn't matter what is the mother tongue of the baby, but they all go through the same phases of speech development. So, of course, first comes crying, and that's their universal language, and then they start to develop um, babbling or put sounds together. And, you know, whether a baby is born in a Japanese-speaking family or a Spanish-speaking family, they combine the consonant and vowels in the same pattern. So starting with one syllable, two syllables, and then eventually um, variegated babbling, which is more of a sophisticated um, language um, phase. Uh, they all go through the same phase. So that was uh, also one of the inspirations for Babbly. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now tell me exactly how Babbly works. Yeah, so Babbly is an app that helps parents track their uh, child's speech and language development. Um, in the app, what they can do is uh, they can upload a video recording that they already have of their child. Within a few seconds, our AI um, analyzes just the voice uh, of the baby and provides parents with uh, data on exactly what stage uh, of babbling their child is at. Um, once the parents understand the stage of their baby's um, speech and language development, we also give them personalized um, strategies. These are you know, evidence-based. They were all written by speech language pathologists. And what we have done is um, we match the exact strategy with the skill set that a child has and not just the age of the baby. Um, so we truly believe that this is as personal as it gets um, if you are waiting for an assessment or waiting to see uh, a, a, an expert. This is another way to um, help you along that process. It's just incredible, and, and congratulations to you for developing this. And, you know, as I always say, when we share our stories or, or create apps, we empower other people. Um, where can people find Babbly? Um, they can find us at babbly.co, so that's B-A-B-B-L-Y dot C-O. Um, the app is also available both in um Play Store and App Store, um, iOS and Android, and they can uh, download it for free at the moment. Uh, we will turn it into a paid app later this year, but um, our goal is to always have a free version um, for families that um, are interested. Well, it's fascinating. And thank you so much. What incredible work you've done, Miriam Nabavi, CEO of Babley. Thanks so much for joining the program tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Maureen. Thanks for having me.
June is Stroke Awareness Month, and you may or may not be aware of that, but fortunately, on the line, I am joined by Dr. Jennifer Yao. She's a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia, and she's going to talk to us about stroke, post-stroke spasticity, and how Canadians can spot not only the signs of a stroke, but someone who may also be suffering from spasticity. Good evening, Dr. Yao. Hello, Maureen. How are you this evening? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining me. This is just such an important subject right now. And um, talking about stroke, there's a new acronym, which we'll get to, to help identify patients suffering from uh, post-stroke spasticity, much like the FAST acronym. But how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected stroke care overall? Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting. I think in the early part of the pandemic, certainly in um, the spring and summer of 2020, uh, the whole world actually saw a decrease in the number of stroke patients that were seen in hospitals and underwent hospitalization and treatments. And I think it just speaks to the fact that people were afraid to go into the hospitals. Um, and that number is still is still recovering, actually. it's It's gone up since then for sure. Um, but uh, there was a drop, certainly, initially. And were people just have experiencing stroke symptoms and staying at home? I think that is uh, sometimes the case for sure. We were seeing people who potentially could have presented sooner with their stroke symptoms but didn't and were reluctant to. Uh, and unfortunately, as a result of that, some people uh, missed the window for some very important treatments uh, or ended up having more severe strokes as a result. And that window is typically about four hours, isn't it? That once you're having, that's why it's important to act fast, but once you're having symptoms of stroke, which we'll review, um, to get into the hospital so that you can get certain medications within a certain period of time? Yes, that's right. Uh, Usually we need to know when the stroke symptoms came on, and then you usually have anywhere between four to six hours, ideally less than four hours, to get into an emergency center uh, where if you are having one of these ischemic-type stroke or clotting-type strokes, uh, you may be eligible to receive one of these clot-busting drugs uh, or to undergo a procedure to have the clot removed. But if the Uh, diagnosis is delayed um, for more than about six hours, then the chances of being able to qualify for those types of treatments will then diminish uh, substantially. And is that because they won't work, the clot busters won't work after that period of time? It's because with the studies that looked at these treatments is after a certain period of time, the risk of having significant bleeding with these procedures mm-hmm. will then increase. So the risk-benefit ratio really starts to drop off. Wow. Um, very, very important for people to get in if they're having any facial drooping, arm weakness, speech difficulties. Um, now, tell us a little bit about post-stroke spasticity, or PSS. Yes, well, spasticity is a uh, involuntary motor condition that we see in people uh, after stroke, as well as in some people who have had other what we call upper motor neuron injuries, so injuries to their brain or spinal cord. Mm-hmm. And what it is is basically a tightening or contraction of the muscle, especially when the muscle is being stretched or moved 
uh, at a faster speed. And people can end up with increased tightness and rigidity of certain uh, joints. And chronically, they can even end up with permanent contractures um, or loss of range of movement in certain joints. And so this is yet again another reason why it's important to get treatment for stroke as soon as possible because that will then affect a person's quality of life, spasticity after a stroke, and even potentially their living conditions. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, getting to the hospital early to try and get treatment for stroke will hopefully decrease the overall severity uh, of the stroke. Um, And in terms of the spasticity is then that you can have that assessed at an earlier stage by people who can help look out for that. And early treatment of spasticity, we know, can help prevent the spasticity from getting worse and therefore um, interfere with um, movement uh, and quality of life. And and now, as I mentioned, we have the FAST acronym, which is facial drooping. If you notice on somebody, arm weakness, speech difficulties, and time. Um, So if you're, you know, get the person to the hospital as quickly as possible. Um, But uh, there's a new acronym, I understand, for 2022 to help identify patients suffering from post-stroke spasticity. What is that new acronym? Uh, The new acronym is called REACT, so R-E-A-C-T. And um, so basically it's uh, it's for restricted movement. Uh, so if you're noticing, especially in the paretic limb after a stroke, so the limb that's been affected, that one is losing um, movement uh, or range of movement at the limb. And then early assessment, so getting in there to have that looked at and assessed to see if this is indeed spasticity and, uh, and what treatments might be offered. Um, and, uh, oh, <laughs> you have to excuse me. I don't know if I remember all the the whole whole acronym. Um, the A, the and, altered function, get you back on track. Yes. A for altered function. <laughs> yes, definitely. So when you have shortening of these uh, muscles, you may not be able to move that uh, limb in quite the same way, and mm-hmm. so the functional capacity of that limb uh, will be different uh, and likely not as good if, as if the spasticity is under better control. Yes. Um, and then I believe, uh, I think C is, it, I think it's for control. Yeah, um, cha- yeah, that change in muscle stiffness or posture. Yes, that's right. So controlling of the movement um, and the change that occurs over time because necessity mm-hmm. often doesn't set in immediately, uh, but will come in after a period of days, weeks, or even months. And then finally, of course, the T is to go and talk to your family doctor or to your stroke specialist. So when you notice these changes so that it can be assessed. And so this is something that would occur. uh, So it's not something that requires emergency room care, but it's something that develops after a stroke and may present with a variety of symptoms. So patients may not necessarily, they may be discharged from the hospital, but then the post-stroke spasticity might come a month or two later? Yes, that's correct. That's typically the pattern that we would see. So it's not even something you might pick up in the first few days in hospital, but people will develop this over the course of weeks to months after their stroke. Oh, wow. And uh, I I did not realize this. And so um, the diagnosis and treatment is important because um, early treatment 
can prevent, which mm-hmm. is always excellent, um, can prevent mm-hmm. or potential long-term disability. Um, so what would the treatment be that um, a patient who is experiencing um, spasticity, post-stroke spasticity, what would yeah, their treatment so there be? Are, there are a number of different treatment approaches, uh, and usually we start with things that don't necessarily require medication. So we would start with physical means. So things like stretching and positioning is very important uh, uh-huh. of the affected limb after stroke to prevent um, the onset of the spasticity or to help decrease its severity. Uh, in addition to that, then, is we can also look at oral medications. There are a number of different types of oral medications that require prescription for. Um, the thing with oral medications, of course, is that when you take it by mouth, it goes everywhere in your body. And sometimes mm-hmm. we only want to have decreasing the spasticity in very specific muscle groups, and in which case we will go for more localized treatments, and that often means injecting some type of uh, medications such as botulinum toxin uh, mm-hmm. into the muscle to decrease the contraction of the muscle. Well, Dr. Jennifer Yao, thank you so much. We're up against the clock. I really appreciate very important information and excellent. Um, thank you so much for sharing it with our listeners. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Maureen. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. We've got lots to talk about in this hour. We're going to be talking about the hormone oxytocin and cuddling. Also going to be reviewing Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which is what Justin Bieber has been diagnosed with. But right now, we're going to, as promised from last week, I've brought a lawyer onto the show. Um, and we're going to be talking about the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard defamation suit. Joining me on the line is Paul Mendes, um, a lawyer at Lesprince Mendes Law Firm in Vancouver, British Columbia. Good evening, Paul. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. It's been a long time. How are you? Mm-hmm. What have you been up to the last two years since I last talked to you? <laughs> No kidding. A lot. Yes. <laughs> you would be surprised. <laughs> um, yes, I've kept myself fairly busy. <laughs> the beginning yes. of the pandemic was quite fun, <laughs> yes, I have to indeed. say. I just did outdoor activities. You know, work was yeah. cut down by about 30%, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I stayed away from everybody and bleached everything, so... Mm-hmm. All was good You're with the lunatic yeah, of to be the family. One of those people that trying to be one of those people that never uh, uh, has COVID. If I'm lucky, knock on wood. I've been I don't want to so tempt far. fate. I know, knock on wood. I do not want to tempt fate. I'm the same. Um, but you know, uh, I said it to one of my kids, and they said, uh, "Are you kidding? You're the safest one out there. <laughs> You're not going to get it anyway." But uh, you know, I wear a mask in the house. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyhow, um, but yeah, but nonetheless have uh, have been busy since then. Just trying to sort of live with COVID, if you can, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you will, um, and just getting used to this new way of life, which is Indeed. not as much fun as it used to be. But anyway, um, yeah, but you know, lots of TV on uh, to watch, lots of um, Apple TV and HBO, Netflix. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah, and also and in the um, last few weeks, this trial. <laughs> Absolutely. That you took the words right out of my mouth, which was a defamation trial, but yeah. it actually seemed to 
we've got to be very careful tonight as well. Um, I don't want them to think you're my lawyer. <laughs> that I have a lawyer. Yes, I don't want anyone to exactly. think I have a lawyer. I do not have a lawyer. Um, but, um, you know, that was a defamation trial, and I think people forget mm. that because it raised a lot of issues around uh, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So you as the lawyer, mm-hmm. go ahead. Well, what I wanted to uh, sort of focus on uh, is the role uh, that social media played in uh, shaping public opinion about the trial, and Mm -hmm. quite possibly, I would say, even influencing the jury in this case, because it was also a jury trial, and a a jury trial that was televised. So uh, those things, to me, are very interesting. Um, You know, I feel as though this has been a bit of a social experience that a lot of people have had. It's very hard to come across someone that does not have uh, an opinion on the case. And, uh, you know, what I'm sensing, especially from some of the reading I've done after the case, is that uh, this, this is, there's a lot of concern out there that this case may have a fairly negative impact on women who are victims of intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Maureen, are you a, f- a fan of heavy metal music? Um, not exactly, but I can appreciate uh. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, uh, the heavy metal band Black Sabbath had a hit called yeah. Mob Rules. And uh, it's a cautionary tale about the mindless mayhem of uh, angry mobs, if you will. And it had this right. great line in it, when you listen to fools, the mob rules. And to me, this trial, uh, which is actually the second trial, uh, a lot of people forget uh, there was another That's trial right. in England where, where Johnny Depp sued a newspaper. And and I believe the, the judge in that case uh, found that at least 13 of the 14 allegations of uh, intimate partner violence were proven to be true uh, on a balance of probabilities, which is a different standard than what a lot of people think of when they think of trials, they mostly think of reasonable doubt. Uh, this is a basically balance of probabilities is more likely that it's true than not, right? It's think of it as a percentage, 51% or more likely that it's true versus a criminal verdict, which uh, requires con- conviction uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, it's we're very hard pressed now to find somebody that doesn't have an opinion on this case. And Mm -hmm. and it's probably something along these lines. Johnny Depp was the victim here and Amber Heard is the real abuser. And to top it off, she's a gold digging pathological liar. You know, that, that is uh, not the verdict in the trial, but it certainly is the verdict from the court of public opinion. That's correct. Yeah. And and where did that trial occur? It occurred on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, uh, you know, or as they should be referred to today, uh, maybe as the four apps of the apocalypse. Uh, (laughs) But uh, (laughs) before this trial, by the way, Depp had 12 million followers on Instagram. After the trial, he had over 25 million. And that's incredible to me. Yeah. And that is... Um, you know, basically, uh, the the effect this is having on uh, on society right now. It's hard to believe to me that the jury was not caught up in it. They weren't sequestered, uh, as they wouldn't be sequestered for a civil trial. And sequestering means 
where uh, during, say, a criminal trial, a jury is required to stay in a hotel room, not read the newspaper, not read the coverage. Uh, but, you know, here everyone today has cell phones and they're going back to their homes. They're probably watching TV. They're probably doing what I did during the trial and watching uh, YouTube. And uh, I think that is enough to persuade most people uh, that Johnny Depp was the victim and that uh, Amber Heard probably made the whole thing up. And, and now there was, you're right. I, I totally mm-hmm. agree with you. Um, there was also, some, there were some rumors out there that um, there was a firm that was hired to actually put all of this information on, on social media. Mm-hmm. It seemed coordinated. And uh, the example I can, I, I can give you from my own experience, I, I'd watched the trial more from a point of lawyerly curiosity. I wanted to see uh, cross-examinations. That's what all trial lawyers love to watch. And I wanted to see how the experts were uh, dealt with during the trial. But I did all my watching on YouTube. So as YouTube learns that I'm interested in the trial, it starts pushing uh, interesting clips up towards Uh the top of my list. Right. Because one thing that happened during this trial, apparently, is that if you were a YouTube uh, uh, YouTuber, as they say, as the kids say, uh, your views went down dramatically during this trial. Nobody was interested in your recipes or, Ah. uh, you know, exactly. So the only way you were going to start getting. Uh, views back is you had to start talking about this trial. And I found it very interesting that some of the lawyers whose channels I watch, they started talking about the trial. And it was not just once a week or uh, once a month. It was, well, because the trial didn't last that long. But it was daily where people would be expressing opinions on this trial. And it was very similar. It was very hard to find anybody that was not promoting that same narrative uh, uh, about uh, Amber Hurt, you know. Um, it was quite remarkable, really. For example, today, yeah, if you yeah, go, go on uh, YouTube and search for something like "All the Times Amber Heard Lied," you know, most of those uh-huh. videos are the same carefully edited videos with clips mostly taken out of context, played out of order, that are attempting to uh, paint her not just as a liar, but you know, as a violent psychopath herself. I mean, it was really quite remarkable. And I have to say, I fell for it because I too was getting those videos and I started watching them and it just seeps into your consciousness. And it really wasn't until after the trial that I started uh, reading about the case and reading a bit more about the evidence. Because, you know, as a person who's watching it on YouTube, we're not in the jury. We're not watching all the evidence. Um, you know, our mind wanders, you know, we go and stir mm-hmm. our oatmeal in the morning and come back to it. And, and uh, we're missing important things. And so the best way to catch up is to watch these uh, clips. And I have to say that uh, uh, I think there's really, uh, you know, what, what woman today who's uh, uh, you know, the victim of intimate, intimate partner violence uh, that's connected to a powerful man or a famous man isn't going to think twice now about uh, coming forward or writing an article in a newspaper uh, about their experience. I mean, the thing about this article, if, you, if people haven't read it, they should, uh, doesn't mention Johnny Depp at all. Mm-hmm. And it's really about her experience from childhood to adulthood. 
uh, as a, a, a victim of domestic violence. And uh, also uh, the campaign of hate that was waged on her once she became a witness in the trial in uh, England, which uh, Johnny Depp lost. So that, I think, is uh, the aspect of it uh, that concerns me the most. I mean, it, it definitely convinced me that civil trials like this should not be televised. Uh, I felt the lawyers were playing a lot to the television uh, cameras, and certainly Johnny Depp was. Uh, I'm not sure a litigant in uh, uh, British Columbia could get away with the things he was getting away with, uh, the comedy routine that he often did. While he was in the stand, it was uh, quite a thing to see. And, and uh, you know, now that I've had a chance to think about it, I'm, I have to say I'm a little bit disturbed about, about what I saw and, and the potential that this has to really be uh, have a chilling effect and, on women who are concerned, like who will go to the police uh, in a case uh, like this. Paul Mendes is my guest. He's a lawyer at Lesperance Mendes in Vancouver, Mendes in Vancouver, British Columbia. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Paul. Um, You know, uh, it was a great article in the Washington Post. Everybody should read it. Amber Heard, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. This has to change. I am certain that many, many women who have spoken up against sexual violence have faced the same wrath because of these powerful institutions. And we saw this play out in a court of law. I I did want to point out that... um, uh, what's more, that it was a panel jury of five men and two women. I always find it very disturbing when women uh, don't understand um, or accept, you know, women's stories of violence, uh, intimate partner violence. Um, but a jury of five men and two women, don't, don't you think that there was no hope from the beginning? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, they, they don't really go against the, their own team. Yeah, well, I think that one of the interesting things about this case is it started with an application to have the trial televised. And that was obviously a very uh, tactical decision uh, Mm -hmm. that was made by Johnny Depp's team. You know, there was a well-orchestrated, and I think you put your finger on this earlier, a well-orchestrated campaign between what was going on in the courtroom and what was happening in the so-called court of public opinion. Uh, And those two things work together. And I I do feel that Amber Heard's lawyers have already made this comment that they've indicated that they intend to appeal and and they've uh, observed that uh, or stated that the uh, they feel the jury was likely tainted by what was going on uh, on social media. So luckily for most people that are in civil trials, uh, you know, to the observers that are in the courtroom, I mean, if you go to the, anyone is welcome to come and watch uh, civil trials in a, in a Vancouver uh, courtroom or a BC courtroom, uh, you know, subject to whatever COVID restrictions might still remain in place. Uh, most trials for a, an observer would be like watching paint dry. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not not very interesting, and of course, you can't hear very well like you could hear watching it on TV. And uh, you don't have it, uh, you know, when the breaks are on uh, media commentary uh, about the cases. I mean, there does that does happen occasionally with notorious criminal cases, but in a civil case like this, we. We uh, don't uh, uh, see this in, in Canada at all. So I think that, um, 
you know, it really speaks strongly to the importance of actually not televising courtroom proceedings. And I, and I know we want the justice system to be open, but it's not a form of entertainment. And, and it, unfortunately, in the social media world, uh, that's how these things, they get perverted into being a form of entertainment. And it really does a disservice, I think, to the administration of justice. Uh, it comes up for discussion every once in a while, whether court proceedings in Canada should be televised. You know, there are certain lawyers, you know, I, I sometimes think to myself, oh, I'd love to put on a performance in the courtroom so friends and family could see me. Uh, but, uh, you know, watching uh, watching this trial, it's really convinced me that that is a terrible, terrible idea. There was too much playing to the audience uh, in this case uh, for, for my taste. Yeah, I completely agree with you. We're out of time, Paul, but I've loved talking to you about this, and I, and I really appreciate your take on it. And, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll definitely get you back Thanks, for the Maureen. next televised court case in British Columbia. No, long before that. <laughs> and I, I hope that we don't have an intervening pandemic between the next time I talk. To yes, you. absolutely. I agree. Well, stay, stay well, Paul. Nice to chat to All you. Right, thank Thanks you so much. You it's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. Hopefully you are lying in bed with the one that you love, the one that you care about. It's a very important activity, not just to lie in bed next to one another, but to actually touch each other as well. You know, I have a lot of patients in my clinical practice, the male patients, who tell me when they're in a sexless relationship or a sexless marriage that their their spouse, their partner, their former lover no longer even wants to hug or to touch, which is so sad because what is released when we touch one another is a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin can help us bond with lovers and it's released through music and exercise and also touch. It's produced in the hypothalamus and then it's released into the bloodstream by the pituitary gland. And the main function is to actually facilitate childbirth, which is one of the reasons that it's called the love drug or the love hormone. But oxytocin stimulates the muscles of the uterus to contract and it also boosts the production of prostaglandins and that also helps uterine contractions. We hear a lot about oxytocin during labor uh, and, and delivery and, and postpartum because actually low levels of oxytocin have been thought to be associated with postpartum depression. What we also hear is that the sex stops after the children are born. Uh, it's something that I hear uh, very, very frequently in my clinical practice. The, we also produce oxytocin when we're excited by our sexual partner and when we fall in love. And so it's very important, this particular hormone. And when people stop touching one another, stop hugging one another, and, and also, in fact, I've heard from female patients in my clinical practice that they don't even want their partner to hug them because they're afraid when they have low sexual desire, they fear that it might lead to sex. And so that's why it's so important that education about low sexual desire and actually how the sexual response cycle works is critical. 
and it's critical to long lasting relationships and marriages. And it's also very helpful for children because children suffer when there is a sexless marriage. Maybe I'll do another segment on that coming up soon. Um, But right now I want to focus on oxytocin. So low levels of oxytocin have also been associated with symptoms of depression. I mentioned postpartum depression. And there have been studies done in the past to try to replace oxytocin or give it in a pill or a nasal spray to help with uh, treating anxiety or depression. But the results have not been as beneficial as one might have thought. And it's one reason that it's difficult to actually put this in a pill or in a nasal spray is because it's hard for this hormone to cross the blood-brain barrier. But there's other ways that you can actually increase your oxytocin levels naturally. And I love it naturally. Uh, One way is through exercise. And, And one study noted a jump in oxytocin levels that were measured in participant saliva after they engaged in high intensity martial arts training. So if you're feeling kind of low, you're feeling not too connected to your partner, the touch is no longer there, the cuddling, the hugging, you might want to actually engage in some or sign up for some high intensity martial arts training. The other thing you might want to do is pick up the guitar or start to learn to play an instrument because music also seems to have the ability to increase oxytocin levels, especially when people sing together in a group. That's why we people are so happy when they're uh, in a chorus together or singing together because it does add that element of bonding. And just that simple act of touch does boost oxytocin relief release. And so it's very common for couples, and it's heterosexual couples, it's same-sex couples, it doesn't matter. Low desire affects anybody, men, women, and they. But, you know, when you stop touching one another, when you stop cuddling, when you stop giving those massages, when you no longer make love to your partner or give someone a hug, you know, you actually risk having low levels of oxytocin. But when you do engage in those things, massages and and making love and cuddling, or even giving someone so much as a hug, you end up with higher levels of oxytocin and a greater sense of well-being. It's just one of the four feel-good hormones. And it's one of the most important feel-good hormones. And I'd also like to say that There are so many benefits to touch and cuddling, and a lot of couples go away from this, you know, and it has to do with busy lives and stress and the things you loved about somebody when you first were together with them might drive you crazy now, but oftentimes people forget the benefits of cuddling. But I just wanted to remind you of a few and just take a moment right now to cuddle the one you're with. You don't have to do anything else. Just cuddle. That's it. <laughs> Could lead to something, though, and that's fine. Um, but just, just stay with me for just a few more minutes, and I'll give you those benefits as you cuddle, as you're lying there listening to me, <laughs> giving you the benefits of cuddling. So one thing, it is good for overall health. In part, it helps to relieve pain, and it also can help you to fight colds. Having just come off a bad cold that turned into bronchitis myself 
I obviously have not been cuddling enough, but that is definitely something I'll be increasing in the days ahead when anybody will get near me. (laughs) Um, People are still feeling that I'm infectious, and maybe I am two and a half weeks out. Nonetheless, um, it also connects you to your partner, that cuddling and touch. And and that's very important to be connected to your lover, to be connected to your spouse, to be connected to your partner. And so just think about a good cuddle, lie there in bed or on the couch watching TV. I mean, many, many people today sit there and watch, you know, all sorts of episodic television and maybe have a bowl of popcorn on their lap or a, a bottle of beer in their hands. But you know what? It's nice to take those moments, those times when you're just watching TV or just lying there in bed, reflecting on the day to do it, do it, not do it, but just cuddle. Very important. As um, you probably realize, it does help you bond with your newborn. Cuddling and holding uh, your baby is also very, very important. And that is extremely beneficial for a baby's health. Cuddling also will help you to sleep. Have you ever gone to sleep spooning one another, which is a form of cuddling, lying side by side? Um, Just having your arms wrapped around that person that you care about, that person that you love. It also lets your partner know that you care about them, that you love them. And, you know, it's just such an important activity that doesn't get enough airtime. The other thing that cuddling may do is may help your heart. It actually relieves stress, lowers your blood pressure, and so it may benefit heart health as well. And that easing of stress can help you face the day. You know, these are tough times that we're living in. We're, we're still in a pandemic, for those of you who are questioning that. Um, but we're coming out of lockdown times and politics. And now we're entering into inflation like we've never seen it before. High gas prices, uh, employment issues, lots of people left their jobs during the pandemic looking for a better quality of life, decisions made. You know, these are difficult times. People are divided. And so, you know what? Maybe it's time that we got back to cuddling. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Hell Show, the final stroke of the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I really appreciate you listening to my babbling um, every Sunday night. Uh, Thank you so much. It's greatly appreciated. Um, You know, I was very saddened to see, actually, I'm I'm always saddened to hear when people have troubles, and I was very saddened to hear that Justin Bieber on Instagram announced to the world why he needed to reschedule his show in Toronto, his hometown. Very, very sad, you know, especially when such a young person experiences a rare disease. And we've talked about rare diseases on this show before, but I don't believe that we've talked about Ramsey Hunt syndrome. And and that is what Justin Bieber is, uh, is experiencing right now or has been diagnosed with right now. Ramsey Hunt syndrome or RHS is a rare neurological disorder that is characterized by paralysis of the facial nerve. So they have a facial palsy. And then there's also a rash that is nearby the mouth or the ear. A person may also experience tinnitus or ringing in the ears, and they also may have hearing loss. And uh, Justin also mentioned that he's having difficulty swallowing. And so, you know, trying to explain to the world how serious his condition is, and, he, and he's quite worried about it, and understandably so. RHS or Ramsey Hunt syndrome is caused by the varicella 
varicella zoster virus, the same virus that causes chickenpox in, ch in children and shingles or herpes zoster in adults. And so in Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, the previously inactive or the dormant varicella zoster virus is reactivated and spreads to, the, to affect that facial nerve. That's the same thing that happens in shingles as well. That varicella zoster virus is reactivated and um, causes shingles, which is a very painful condition, um, neurological condition as well. There, I mean, this is must be so devastating for somebody like this, somebody who performs, somebody who sings, but he needs to take some time, as he mentioned, some time off from his uh, very busy and hectic schedule. And oftentimes, there are medical conditions that occur and they can be the result of stress or, or stress can actually bring it on. The, the symptoms of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome vary from case to case. So affected individuals usually have that paralysis of the facial nerve. And so one side of their face doesn't move. And he demonstrated that on, on Instagram. And then they have that rash. But these two symptoms don't always occur at the same time. And in fact, um, but something that is very similar to shingles that is similar to Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is that in most cases, only one side of the face is affected. And in shingles, only one side of the torso uh, is typically affected. So the facial muscles that are affected by this nerve pal palsy that is caused by Ramsey-Hunt syndrome may be weak or feel stiff, and they may, may result in the inability of somebody to smile. You can imagine they wouldn't be able to sing. They wouldn't be able to talk or perform or talk appropriately. They might uh, not be able to wrinkle their forehead or in fact, close their eye on the affected side. And that can lead to problems with the retina, with the cornea, um, dry eyes. And oftentimes people have to tape their eye closed. It's a very, very disturbing condition. Um, there's usually a rash that's very painful that can blister. So it's a vesicular rash that affects the outer portion of the ear and often the external ear canal as well. Um, in some cases, the rash, including the painful blisters, may also affect the mouth or the soft palate and the top portion of the throat. And so that can actually lead to um, difficulty eating because it's very painful to eat. So people can only eat soft foods. If even they're able to do that, they might need to take certain medications. Um, biotin wash, for example, can be helpful. Or, um, But um, so you can see it's a very, uh, it, it, it affects quality of life. It can lead to weight loss. Um, you know, and it's very, very disturbing as to when, you know, people are, gonna, are wondering when they're going to get over this. Um, in, in some individuals with Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, they have this facial palsy with the evidence of the um, chickenpox virus through testing. So ex for example, they can have blood tests done, but they may not have the associated skin abnormalities. And those are a slightly different case. Um, they have a different name. They're actually Zoster sign her pet. But um, he has been diagnosed with this Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And th there can be other quality of life um, concerns, sy symptoms that can occur, like ringing in the ear, which will drive people crazy. They can also have ear pain as well. And that ear pain can be very intense. And any kind of chronic pain is very, very difficult to to live with and to deal with. And the pain may actually spread to affect the neck. 
And some people may go on to develop hearing loss and, and it's a particular type of hearing loss. You can imagine this is a big worry for him because it's a certain sensor, sensory neural hearing loss in, in which there are sound vibrations are not properly transmitted to the brain because of a defect of the inner ear or the auditory nerve. And that is what results in the hearing loss. Hearing loss is usually temporary, but in some cases, it's rare, but it may become permanent. Some people may also um, experience hyperacusis, which is a condition where sounds appear louder, often very dramatically than normal. And this can also cause tremendous, tremendous discomfort for affected individuals. But there's some other symptoms that can occur that you might not think of, but anything that affects the ear, you think nausea, vomiting, and a sensation that one surroundings are spinning so people can have vertigo and also it may affect taste and dry mouth and dry eyes can also occur. So it is a, just a very, very uh, disturbing and un unnerving, if you will, uh, medical condition. And, you know, he's such a young person to be experiencing this. Uh, Ramsey Hunt syndrome affects males and females equally. Five out of every 100,000 people develop Ramsey-Hunt syndrome each year in the U.S., so it's very rare. It's the second most common cause of atraumatic peripheral facial paralysis, and some researchers believe cases of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. You can misdiagnose as pot potentially could be Bell's palsy, um, and then it makes it difficult to actually determine the true frequency, but it is a rare condition. So anyone who's ever had chicken pox can potentially develop Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, but most cases affect older adults, especially those over the age of 60. But, you know, he's a young person. I think he's 28 years old. Correct me if I'm wrong. Please text me. Um, but he's very young. Um, you know, you have to wonder, you know, he did have COVID and, you know, is this a post-COVID situation? Because it's rare, not only is it a rare disease, but it's rare that it occurs in young men um, or young people. So, I mean, very, very disturbing. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's just incredibly sad and I wish him all the best in, in getting um, better, you know, so it's, um, you know, it's, it's a big worry and it's a big worry for him. So anybody who was disappointed with uh, not being able to go to the concert, you know, understand why. Um, it's, it's, um, there's absolutely no way that this person could have performed on stage for anybody. Anyway, we wish him all the best. We wish him a speedy recovery. It has certainly raised awareness about Ramsey Hunt syndrome. Um, hopefully he will get the treatment that he needs. Treatment typically involves antiviral medications like acyclovir and also, um, corticosteroids like prednisone. Um, and hopefully he's had antiviral treatment that began very early. So within three days of the onset, because that is very helpful. Anytime you have a viral illness, antivirals are helpful uh, very early on in the condition because that helps you to have the greatest benefit as prompt diagnosis and management seems to improve outcomes. And that's true for any medical condition. But, you know, despite the therapy, he may end up with some degree of facial paralysis and hearing loss. So hopefully that's not the case for him. Um, but anyway, uh, hopefully he has a speedy recovery and he is back to performing.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.